In Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a political rally is underway. Campaigning as a third-party candidate with hopes of returning to the White House for a third term, Theodore Roosevelt began his speech by saying, Friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. His second line was a bombshell. I do not know whether you fully understand, he says, but I have just been shot. The horrified audience on that October day in 1912 gasped as the former president unbuttoned his vest to reveal a bloodstained shirt. But let me tell you, he exclaimed, it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. The crowd went wild. He reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a 50-page speech folded in half. Holding up his prepared remarks, which had two big holes blown clean through each page, he said, while not preventing the bullet from entering my body, my long-winded manuscript at least slowed the bullet down. He went on to speak for another 25 minutes as blood continued to drip down his shirt. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in part two of our two-part series of the Progressive Era, we'll take a look at how this movement ascended to the White House. Theodore Roosevelt was never intended to be president. He was seen as reckless to Republicans, but he was popular. He graduated with the highest honors from Harvard University, wrote 23 books, was considered the world's foremost authority on North American wildlife. He was a prize-fighting boxer, leader of the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War, a cowboy, a socialite, a police commissioner, a governor, and even a vice president. He even lived through the passing of his mother and his wife, who died on the same day. Roosevelt's energy was contagious, and the whole country was electrified by this man. In essence, Roosevelt was a rock star. During the campaign of 1900, it was decided that nominating Roosevelt for the vice presidency would serve two purposes. First, his popularity would surely help President McKinley's re-election bid. But second, and most importantly, moving Roosevelt to the vice presidency might decrease his power within the Republican Party. Many believed that Roosevelt would do less harm as vice president than as governor of New York. William McKinley won the presidency in 1900 with, of course, Roosevelt's help. All was going according to plan. 
that is, until an assassin's bullet, ended McKinley's life in September of 1901. At 42 years of age, Teddy Roosevelt, affectionately called TR, did not wait long to act. Soon it was clear that a new type of president was in town. The presidency had been dormant since Lincoln's time. Congress seemed to be running the government, and big business seemed to be running Congress. But before long, Roosevelt lashed out against the trusts and sided with American labor. The Pure Food and Drug Act and the Meat Inspection Act protected consumers, largely based on the works of the muckrakers, particularly Upton Sinclair. Steps were taken to protect America's wilderness lands that went beyond any previous president. The worst fears of conservatives were realized. President Roosevelt was using the White House as a bully pulpit to promote an active government that protected the interests of people over big business. The progressive movement finally had an ally in the White House. Although he considers himself a man of means, he criticized the wealthy class of Americans on two counts. First, continued exploitation of the public could result in a violent uprising that would destroy the whole system. And second, the captains of industry were arrogant enough to believe themselves superior to the elected government. Now that Roosevelt was president, he went on the attack. Roosevelt was in charge. The captains of industry were not. The president's weapon was the Sherman Antitrust Act. It was passed by Congress in 1890, and this law declared illegal all combinations, quote, in restraint of trade. But for the first 12 years of existence, the Sherman Act was just a simple piece of paper. United States courts routinely sided with big business when any enforcement of the act was attempted. It was time for Roosevelt to use the power of the White House. Theodore Roosevelt was not the type to initiate major changes timidly. The first trust giant to fall victim to Roosevelt's assault was none other than the most powerful industrialist in the country, J.P. Morgan. Morgan controlled a railroad company known as Northern Securities. In addition to owning U.S. Steel, Morgan controlled more than 90% of railroad shipping across the northern United States. Morgan was enjoying a peaceful dinner at his New York home on February 19, 1902, when his telephone rang. He was furious to learn that Roosevelt's attorney general was bringing suit against Morgan's Northern Securities Company. Stunned, he muttered to his equally shocked dinner guests about how rude it was to file such a suit without warning. Four days later, Morgan marched to the White House to meet directly with the president. Morgan bellowed that he was being treated like a common criminal. 
the president, leaning into Morgan, informed him that no compromise would be reached. This matter would be settled by the courts. Courts with freshly appointed judges by Roosevelt. This was the core of Theodore Roosevelt's leadership. He boiled everything down to a case of right versus wrong, good versus bad. If a trust controlled an entire industry, but provided good service at reasonable rates, it was considered a good trust. It would be left alone. Only the bad trusts that jacked up rates and exploited consumers would come under Roosevelt's attack. Who would decide the difference between right and wrong? Well, the occupant of the White House, of course, who only trusted himself to make this decision in the interest of everyday people. The American public cheered Roosevelt's new offensive. The Supreme Court, in a narrow 5-4 to four decision, agreed and dissolved Morgan's northern securities monopoly. Roosevelt said confidently in a speech that no man, no matter how powerful, was above the law. As America grew, Americans were destroying its natural resources. Farmers were depleting the nutrients of overworked soil. Miners removed layers and layers of valuable topsoil. And everywhere forests were shrinking and wildlife was becoming more scarce. The growth of urban America brought a new interest in preserving the old lands for future generations. Dedicated to saving the wilderness, the Sierra Club formed with John Muir as its president. He worked valiantly to stop the sale of public lands to private developers, and at first, most of his efforts fell on deaf ears. Until Roosevelt. Roosevelt was an avid outdoorsman. He hunted, hiked, and camped, even rode a moose. Roosevelt believed that living in nature was good for the body and soul. John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt were more than just political acquaintances. In fact, they were actually friends. In 1903, Roosevelt took a vacation by camping with Muir in Yosemite National Park. The two agreed that making efficient use of public lands was not enough. Certain wilderness had to be left undeveloped. By the time Roosevelt left office, 150 million acres of land that had been deemed national forests were forever safe from axe and saw. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Conservation fever was spreading among urban intellectuals as a result. By 1916, even though Roosevelt was not president, his legacy lived on through not only the national parks, but through the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, which were formed to give urban youths a greater appreciation of nature. Memberships in conservation and wildlife societies soared, and Roosevelt distinguished himself as the greatest presidential advocate of the environment since Thomas Jefferson. Much damage had been done, 
but America's beautiful, abundant resources were given new life by TR. I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps in the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts. All around me, a voice was a sounding. This land was made for you and me. 1908 was not a good year for TR. The nation was recovering from a financial panic that had rocked Wall Street the previous year, and many leading industrialists unjustly blamed the crisis on the president. It seems like TR's time in the White House was coming to a close. But much like a king in a monarchy, Roosevelt named a successor that would carry out his programs. William Howard Taft, his best friend. Roosevelt's support thrust Taft to the Republican nomination. In the fall of 1908, the populist and tired William Jennings Bryant lost, giving Taft the presidency. Despite criticisms from progressive Republicans, President Taft did support many of Roosevelt's goals. He broke twice as many trusts in just one term as Roosevelt had broken in two. Taft limited the workday of federal employees to eight hours and supported the 16th and 17th Amendments to the Constitution. But politics can sometimes turn the best of friends into the worst of enemies. Such was the fate for the relationship between Roosevelt and Taft. Roosevelt's decision to challenge Taft for the Republican nomination in 1912 was most difficult. Now, historians will disagree on Roosevelt's motives. Defenders of Roosevelt insist that Taft betrayed the progressive platform. When Roosevelt returned to the United States after a worldwide tour, he was pressured by thousands of progressives to lead them once more. Roosevelt believed that he could do a better job uniting the party than his old friend Taft. He felt a duty to the American people to run for office. Critics of Roosevelt were not so kind. Roosevelt had a huge ego. His lust for power could not keep him on the sidelines. Some will say he stabbed his friend in the back, overlooking the positive sides of Taft's presidency. The now former friends flung insults at each other in the summer of 1912. Taft had the party leadership behind him, but Roosevelt had the people. Roosevelt spoke of a new nationalism. This was a broad plan of social reform for America. Parting with the Republicans, Roosevelt started the Bull Moose Party, as TR was, in the people's minds, tough as a bull moose. The split in the Republican Party proved too much. In 1912, it would be a Democrat who would take a seat at the executive desk, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. His 1912 platform for change was called the New Freedom. Wilson was an admirer of Thomas Jefferson, the agrarian utopia of a small, educated group of farmers envisioned by Jefferson struck a chord with Wilson 
The New Freedom sought to achieve this vision by attacking what Wilson called the triple wall of privilege, the tariff, the banks, and the trusts. Unlike Roosevelt, Wilson did not distinguish between good trusts and bad trusts. Any trust by virtue of its large size was bad in Wilson's eyes, and the Democrat initiated the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, clarifying the Sherman Act, by specifically naming certain business tactics as illegal. However, issues in a domestic America quickly took a back seat. In two years, Wilson's eyes turned to a greater concern, particularly an outbreak in Serbia something about the assassination of the Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that concludes part two on our series about the Progressive Era. Coming up next, we'll rewind the clock and take a look at America in the age of imperialism. Since the early days of Jamestown, Americans were constantly stretching their boundaries to encompass more territory. When the United States government was formed, the practice continued. The first half of the 19th century was spent defining the nation's borders through negotiation and war, and the second half was spent populating the fruits of that labor. As the 20th century dawned, many believed that the expansion, the ideals of Manifest Destiny, should continue in Latin America and the South Pacific. Empire America. Roosevelt speaks softly, but carries a big stick. I thank you for joining me on this episode of Print the Legend, where we look at stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm Mr. Nasosi, and I look forward to having you join me right back here next time.